way of demonstrating uh, love to our neighbor is to acknowledge the sacrifices that our neighbors make on behalf of us. And uh, certainly this Memorial Day, um, uh, particularly here in Annapolis, we're especially aware of the sacrifice that many people have made for the, uh, the safety and security of our country and um, the lives that we live together. So um, in acknowledgement of that, I'd like to just uh, to pray uh, with you for um, our veterans on Memorial Day and those who have lost their lives in service of our country. Let's pray together. O King and Judge of the nations, we remember before you with grateful hearts the men and women of our armed forces who in the day of decision ventured much for the liberties we now enjoy. Grant that we may not rest until all the people of this land share the benefits of true freedom and gladly accept its disciplines. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns now and forever. Amen. That's a prayer we should be praying probably more often than just Memorial Day. Well, today is Pentecost, 50, 50 days, 49 days, seven weeks plus one after Passover. Um, in Hebrew, it's, the, it's called Shavuot, and you can read all about it in Leviticus, Numbers, and other places in the, the Old Testament. Um, God himself asked the children of Israel, the Israelites, to commemorate uh, their relationship through a series of uh, feasts and uh, holy days that would, help the, uh, that, that would help the Jewish people remember um, what it means to be themselves as God's covenant people and to recall the story of God's faithfulness. Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, is a harvest festival, and it was during this feast, uh, it was one of what we call the pilgrimage feasts when Jewish people would, if they could, celebrate actually in Jerusalem. So a lot of people there from all over the place. Uh, at the time of Jesus, Many Jewish people lived outside the land of Israel in what's called the diaspora, and that was a result of some of their, uh, uh, the result of their exile um, that you can also read about in the Old Testament. Um, it's kind of a sad feature of Israel's history that um, because they experienced times of uh, significant unfaithfulness, um, they fell, the relationship with God kind of fell apart, and there were seasons in which the Jewish people were forced out of their homeland into Egypt, and uh, Babylon and Assyria and all over the place and had established lives for themselves there. That is really loud. Is it just loud for me or is that loud for everybody? Um, I mean, if it's comfortable, that's one thing, but um, uh, I'm not used to that. So the Jewish people were gathered, a lot of people in Jerusalem during this kind of season of Pentecost or 50 days, the season of Shavuot, and that's when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon these new Jewish disciples and uh, the people gathered in Jerusalem. Um, one of the th interesting things about uh, Shavuot is it became identified with the giving of the Torah, the giving of God's law at Sinai. So the giving of Torah was becoming a part of that Shavuot uh, um, commemoration and it's where uh, at Mount Sinai when the Torah is given, right, with Moses and, and the, uh, the Israelites there gathered around Mount Sinai, it's when the it's when the word of God comes to them. And the rabbis would say that it's when 
the people of God are gathered together in unity that the Holy Spirit manifests itself. Because that's what happens first in Sinai. And believe it or not, there were tongues of fire that fell on uh, the uh, leadership uh, during that time. So there's some interesting synergy between the uh, giving of Torah and the, uh, the falling of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost. Um, this becomes very important for, <clears throat> um, for Israel's sense of identity, of who they are as God's covenant people. And this is what, as time would unfold in Israel's history, the prophets uh, kept calling Israel back to when they were experiencing times of idolatry or waywardness or separating from the God who cares for them, the prophets were there to remind them of who they were. And Jeremiah says, Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, use similar language here, but you can read in Jeremiah 31, 31, he talks about the renewal of the covenant this way. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. He's talking about a covenant to come, a new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and they will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Jeremiah looks forward to a day when what's out there gets put in here. And somehow the, the writing on the heart is a deeply uh, powerful metaphorical expression of what it's like for the infilling of God within us. And this is what happens through the Holy Spirit. It's an encounter of God's heart and ours. It's an expression of our encounter, not only with God, God's heart and our hearts, but our hearts and other hearts around us. You'll see that Pentecost, the fall of the Holy Spirit on people is inherently communal. The Holy Spirit, the Torah is given to Israel when they're gathered together around Mount Sinai as his people. The Holy Spirit falls on Israel again when they're gathered together in unity around faith in the risen Messiah. So Pentecost is about our hearts and Jesus' heart and it's about our hearts as his followers. I want to actually uh, 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 guide you to the reading from 1 Corinthians today. Um, interestingly, uh, the impact of the Holy Spirit falling on uh, M Messiah's followers in the Jewish community means that the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And this is exactly what God said would happen to Abraham when he said, Abraham, I'm going to call you and your family is a special people, and through you, all people will be blessed. The Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles is part of that covenant promise and part of that covenant fulfillment. So I'm a Gentile. I know many of us here are Gentiles. We are inheritors of that promise that came to Abraham through the Jewish people who were the first missionaries to us. And Paul, the Jew, is going out among the Gentile community and conveying to them faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, expressed to them through the Messiah, Jesus. And it's kind of a heavy lift. And I often think that Paul had to do this through letters, through words. Now, he was present as much as he could be. He would plant a church, he would visit a congregation, he would minister to them. And then after that, it was letter writing. Imagine that, the pressure of trying to receive news and, and the burden of, of, of hearing news 
and conveying to them the teaching that would connect them back uh, to God again. Because he could tell in the church of Corinth that was in distress. It says in chapter 1, verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. I like that phrase, <laughs> Chloe's people. <laughs> They're good informers. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Uh, it's distressing, but particularly aggravating is the kind of quarreling. Each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or I follow Christ. Of course, the last one's probably the one that he wishes everyone would follow. But he's, he's saying the whole enterprise of choosing your leader is wrong. Paul goes on to say that they're basing their discernment on the wrong sources. They're impressed with the wrong things. This is especially a problem in, in Greek culture because there's a lot to be impressed with. In that culture, what was impressive were rhetorical gifts, people who could speak well. Uh, what was impressive were intellectual and philosophical acumen. There were smart people back then, and they were good at expressing their intelligence well. What was powerful was political authority. Um, you know, there were mostly poor people, and then there were a lot of very wealthy, well, there were, there were a much smaller number of powerful, wealthy people. And, and uh, because of that kind of disconnect, they were, you know, you, you kind of felt the awe and presence when you were around those kinds of people. And even though the members of these little congregations of new believers in Jesus were not powerful, they were nonetheless still shaped by that culture. And Paul's trying to say, let's, that's not where we resource ourselves. Of course, we can think of lots of analogies today. Celebrity stat status. We love physical talent and beauty. Very important for us. People who are brilliant in the STEM, you know, the bane of all of us who are good at humanities. Um, people who have wealth. We love wealthy people. People who have political power. Not much has changed there. Lots of education. Or maybe you're one of those who just rebels against all of it, and that's the source of pride that you're in. It's the counterculture movement. We don't do that kind of thing, and you can see how how important that is. But the power of the gospel isn't demonstrated through the existence of any of those things, Paul wants to say. Of course, they can be good expressions of God's blessing. You know, this isn't a call to remove ourselves or to say that, you know, some of those attributes aren't things that belong to being human and are within the realm of our stewardship. They can be God's blessings and we can be grateful for them and good stewards of them. But here's the key thing that Paul wants to say. He's not trying to say this is good and that's bad and this is good and that's bad. There's a fundamental difference, and here it is. The gospel is about a relationship. That's the big difference. That's what the Corinthian church is failing to grasp well. All of these attributes are inherently non-unrelational. They're just simply transactional things. They have to do more with covetousness. Paul's saying, uh, the gospel is about a relationship. The gospel is about a relationship with God through Jesus and with each other through Jesus. And that's what's missing from all of this other stuff. If you, if you have your Bible, you can see how Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. God is faithful, he says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're called into fellowship. We're called into a certain kind of thing with Jesus, which is described as fellowship with Paul. 
So it's inherently relational. And when you look at the world that way, you look at it very, very differently. And Paul does not like it when he sees how the Corinthian church is confusing, non-relational, kind of transactional and almost covetousness kinds of attributes with something that's inherently relational in the ministry of Jesus. But Paul uh, goes on to say, uh, he, he kind of knows why this is a little difficult. Paul wants to differentiate what it's like between having the wrong sources of spiritual knowledge from the right sources of spiritual knowledge. And you can read about this now in uh, the second chapter, verses one and two. Paul, when he, he says, and when I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And who knows, maybe Paul's a little insecure. I don't know, he didn't, because in another place, uh, you know, and I think it was with the Corinthian church again, and either this, this letter or one of the other Corinthian letters, he acknowledges that he wasn't very impressive. Um, and he says here again, I didn't come to you impressively. I didn't look like the people that you find impressive, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus himself isn't very impressive to that way of being, to that way of thinking. A Messiah who dies? He'll say it again in this way in chapter 15, verse 3 of, of 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's of what's first importance to Paul, not his own performance even. Paul says in verse 7 that this gospel does not appeal to the wisdom of this age. So when he talks about the wisdom of this age, it's a way of describing that whole thing. That, that, and, and we know what it is. It's, it's that whole way of looking at things. And we see it in our you know, day and age. We see it so clearly you know, because we're screen people. You know, we're getting bombarded with things all the time that just encapsulate the wisdom of this world almost just by looking at it. And Paul's saying, yeah, it's, our stuff is hidden from that. Paul even calls it secret wisdom. Why is it secret and hidden? Because in contrast to those impressive human attributes, the gospel appears weak, powerless, and unimpressive. And in fact, it just does. Like you, you can't try to convince, Paul in a certain way says, it's just what it looks like to people who don't have faith. It appears weak, powerless, and unimpressive. It's therefore unseen. So Paul goes on to describe two, two sorts of people. First of all, he said there are those people who are impressed by these cultural standards and they just can't look at the gospel and say, yeah, I, that is appealing to me. They just can't. Paul calls this a natural person. The natural person, in verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You just can't rummage around that space and find the gospel in it. And if you're a firm believer in that way of looking at things, then the gospel is just going to look kind of silly. They have what Paul calls in verse 12, the spirit of the world. Or verse 5, they're influenced by the wisdom of men. All right? So there's a whole way of being that is natural and impressive and successful. And then when you're in that and it's working well, right, you don't really want to consider the opposite, which is kind of a weak, you know, poor, impoverished 
kind of, you know, kind of challenge to the thing that's working well for you. Again, Paul's not saying that we should not engage with that knowledge and that we shouldn't be inspired by that kind of creativity that's acquired and expressed by people created in his image. But he's not saying, he's not saying that that's all bad. What he's saying is that if we look for the source of life in the success and achievement of those things, that's not relational. So yes, we can be inspired and we can be amazed by the best of secular culture, to put it that way, the natural person. But the fruits of that plausible lifestyle, even if it's working for you, no matter how reasonable it can appear on the outside, will lead to corruption of those very good things. And that's the world we live in. It's a fallen world, we call it. That plausible lifestyle, if God is not in it, will automatically lead to disunity, abuse, lawlessness, addiction, lust, poverty, war. It affects ourselves, our families, our churches, our cultures. This is called idolatry in the Old Testament or foolishness or the way of the wicked in wisdom literature like Psalm 1, for example, or in Proverbs. Paul said that they would think it's folly. Well, this isn't, by the way, to point fingers at people, of course, we all are affected by this very, very deeply. Um, we all struggle with the culture around us. We are all Corinthians in that sense. All right, so Paul is not trying to scold. He's trying to rem help us remember who we are and how to return to something that actually is very beautiful and very powerful, but just in a different way. So on Pentecost Sunday, we're celebrating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his people. And that the Holy Spirit is what constitutes spiritual people, acquainted with the power of God, just a much different power, he says in verse 5. Spiritual people, he says, possess a secret and hidden wisdom of God. They're able actually to judge all things in verse 15. You know, this is a great reversal. Actually, it's the humble and spiritual people who see the secret and hidden things that are actually capable of judging all things. And Paul says this does not come from intellectual comprehension through teaching alone. That's why teaching is very important, but it only gets you halfway there. What actually brings spiritual knowledge to us is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things. But what things? I love this phrase, the things freely given to us by God. Take note of how Paul describes the encounter. He draws attention to our spirits. We don't often talk this way, by the way, uh, our spirits. Um, but it's a very good thing to know. One of my favorite professors in seminary said he wishes that every student he'd ever taught would know one thing, and that's that they are spirits. And uh, um, I, I didn't have a chance to really unpack. I've been trying to unpack that my entire life, but it's the way Paul says, too. It's the, it's the self that knows itself. It's the part of ourselves that knows ourselves to be selves. Sometimes we use the word soul to describe these things. It's that, it's, that, it's that kind of self-awareness that knows that it is relational, that knows itself as itself, that knows other people as selves. And Paul says that we're, this is 
the Holy Spirit is engaging at the very deepest level of who we are, of how we know ourselves to be. But so that place within us is created specifically for this kind of spiritual fellowship. Remember, we're called into fellowship with Jesus. So Paul says, look, our spirits know our inward thoughts. He says, God's spirit knows and comprehends God's thoughts, even the depths of God, Paul says of the Holy Spirit in verse 10. So the Holy Spirit, who knows even the depths of God, is able to disclose those very depths to our spirits so that we can understand things freely given to us. This is a lot of weight to bear in a letter, isn't it? Paul is describing some pretty intense things here. It's relational knowing. It's convictional knowing. It's knowing that it happens in the exchange between persons in their fullness, not just their ideas. It's not just the exchange of thoughts. It's actually the encounter of two persons at the deepest level. I'm going to skip ahead to kind of tell the story I had closer to the end, but I think it belongs here. I, I'll give you an example of this. I knew that I was a father before Talia was born. In fact, Talia was, the way I look at it, a person, right, before she was born. And I was coming to know that person all the way through nine months of pregnancy with deep reading of what to expect when you're expecting and more pillows in the bed and Lamaze classes and trying out combinations of names and all that. You know, we felt Talia move, you know. Um, but I, so I, in a sense, I, I was a father and I knew that and I knew lots of information about that and I already had kind of a connection. She was there. But the moment of birth was unlike anything I could have ever anticipated. We were purposefully unaware of the gender, so we didn't know whether we would have a boy or a girl. And as I tell Talia, my daughter is at the piano now, so my daughter, by the way. As I tell Talia every day, it was the best moment of my life when she was born. And as she was born, the midwife had me stand next to her and deliver Talia, actually. And frankly, I don't really remember anyone else in the room but me and Talia and Becca. I think there are other people, but they're just not in my mind. She was my daughter and I was her father. And, but it was the blessing and reality of us together. That was it. it. It made the thing that was out there in here. The fact that I was you know, already a father was made real in the personal encounter. And the personal encounter is what elevates my capacity to be a faithful father to the extent that I can be. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what we were designed for. That's what the Holy Spirit is able to do because he knows the depths of God and he knows the depths of our own spirit and he cries out in our spirit, Abba, Father, that we are children of God. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and it is the deepest part of Pentecost. What are these things freely given to us? Well, I could just go on and on, and I probably should, but I mean, just scattering around uh, the letters of Paul and, and the gospel reading this morning from that section in John where Jesus is teaching his disciples, our sins are forgiven. That's freely given. We didn't deserve that. We're born again. 
That is a beautiful phrase, by the way, when you really think about that. That's what happens in baptism. We are born again. We're regenerated. Paul says we're new creations in Christ Jesus. You know, you no sooner say those words and you think, I've got to go off by myself for a while and really think about what that means. A new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul says in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. His mind. Jesus says that we abide in him like branches in a vine. Paul says in verse 16, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Temples, our bodies. Note the Trinitarian collaboration, by the way, in our readings this morning, the collaboration of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to unite our hearts in an act of rebirth and regeneration, enlarging our spirits with God's own spirit, opening access to his heart and to the things freely given. Jesus said it this way in our reading, the Holy Spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And I think that what Jesus has is pretty amazing. Jesus and Paul are saying to us this, the Holy Spirit is in you to make the heart of Jesus deeply known and deeply felt. We've been reading together uh, Dane Ortland's book, Jesus uh, Gentle and Lowly. And I, I love the way that he says this. The Spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us, not just heard, but seen. Not just seen, but felt. Not just felt, but enjoyed. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus' heart and moves it from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. Like Talia being born. The Spirit helps us feel and enjoy the things of God. He helps us feel that we belong to his family. He helps us feel a sense of well-being in his, in his provision. He helps us feel a sense of purpose, belonging to his kingdom mission. He helps us feel loved and embraced by God the Father. Paul says it this way in Corinthians in first chapter, verses four through eight. In every way you were enriched in him so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for our Lord who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Does it matter whether or not we feel and whether or not we enjoy the things of God? I mean, they're still true whether we feel them and whether we enjoy them, but it does matter. Not because we base the truth of the gospel on whether we feel a certain way about it. I don't mean that, the shifting sands of our emotions. But because if we don't feel, then we don't know as fully as God wants us to know these things. If we can't feel God's love, then we can hardly express it to others. If I was just not feeling when Talia was born, imagine what kind of father I'd be. I hate to think that there are those among us who have that kind of experience. This is not the way that God is. God feels very, very deeply. And in him, it's safe to have these kinds of feelings. To feel is to care and to receive care. It's to be moved with compassion and to feel the love of others. It's to open our hearts to God and to each other, to bless and not to curse, to love even on our enemies, to worship. This is to feel. 
Here's just one example from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 3, about feeling. He says to the church in Corinth, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abund abundantly in comfort too. That's just one of many, many examples of the importance of having the feeling of belonging to Jesus. The feelings of a person regenerated by the Holy Spirit are the fruit of experiencing the heart of Jesus. They are love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Imagine the impact that you would have on your families, colleagues, friends, neighbors, and your enemies if that is what they experienced from you as a genuine way of being with them because you felt the Holy Spirit giving you the things uh, freely given you in Christ. Ortland, the author of that book, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit is a person. And he asks us what it would look like to treat him as a person in our actual lives. In other words, we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. It's he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ortland asks this, what might it look like to open up the vents of our hearts to receive the felt love of Christ as fanned into warm flame by the Holy Spirit? It's a good question. What would it look like? Of course, it's personal to each one of us, but first place to start is to trust. It's to put our trust in Jesus, our Savior, our friend, our advocate, our intercessor, the one who has freely given us all things. We don't earn, we don't control, we don't manipulate the Holy Spirit, nor do we beg or plead. Trust is not passive, though. Trust may mean that we have to untrust some other things. To create a few moments of rest and quiet so that we can reflect and pray and get in touch with our own spirit and find out what are we trusting? What do we need to untrust? And who do we need to trust more? I recommend simple and honest prayer to the Holy Spirit based on what Jesus and Paul teach us about his role. So the Holy Spirit does particular things. Do you know what the Holy Spirit does? He cries out within you, Abba, Father. He's the voice of God in you, acknowledging with you that you are a child of God. He, uh, he groans for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, Paul says. That's part of his ministry of intercession, to take the parts of ourselves that we can't find words for and express them to God. The Holy Spirit has a rich ministry of bringing dead things to life. He's the regenerator. He's the new birther. Listen to what the Holy Spirit impresses upon you and meditate upon that. Meditate on the things freely given to you and say thank you. That's part of the Shavuot tradition is to bring in the harvest. It's an expression of thanksgiving. Great thing to do just to take our harvest, what God has given to us, and express gratitude. It's a way of connecting with that and feeling something about it. You were born again. You're a new creation. The spirit dwells within you. You're part of a new family. You're part of a new kingdom. You're part of a new story. You're part of a new future. 
say thank you as part of your Feast of Tabernacles worship and then share that bounty with other people. Remind them of what's true. Portland reminds us that the Holy Spirit has given us all this decisively at our moment of regeneration, but it doesn't stop there in the moment of our rebirth. Ortland says he does it 10,000 times thereafter as we continue through sin, folly, or boredom to drift from the felt experience of his heart. Thankfully, no matter how far we drift, he can find us right where we are 10,000 times. Today, let's be bold and ask the Holy Spirit to renew our joy in the heart of Jesus. Amen.